Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Word Processing. My name is Andrew, I'm one of the pastors at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario, and I'm joined again today with Tim, our pastoral intern, and it's great as always to see you, Tim. It's great to be here, Andrew. Thank you so much again for having me. Well, Tim came up with this week's podcast idea, and this topic that we're going to discuss is really God, which is, I think, something we can never talk about enough on a podcast about God's Word and God's people and God himself. yeah. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But Tim, specifically, you had this idea today that we would talk about some characteristics of God, some different aspects of his character. Now, we'll add the disclaimer at the beginning. Obviously, this list is not exhaustive, but many of these characteristics embody many of the other characteristics we would talk about when it comes to God. And so what we're going to do today is talk about four characteristics of God And specifically, explain a little bit what we mean, you know, around the church or in our kind of like Christian speak when we talk about these words. And then Tim and I are both going to give some maybe some insights or some thoughts that came to mind from God's word about these topics, demonstrations of these characteristics to help us better as God's people understand them, get a better understanding of God himself, and really just appreciate these things. Now, none of these characteristics will be new to any of you. I'm sure all of you know all of them and what they mean. But again, it never hurts to be reminded and to spend some time dwelling on and reflecting on aspects of the God who made us, the God who saved us, the God who sustains us, and the God who will one day bring us home. So Tim, let's get right into it. Let's talk about one that comes to most people's mind at the very beginning when they think of God, and that is God's love. So talk to us a little bit about God's love. Yeah, absolutely. I figured we could open our time today, just diving straight into the word. This passage comes from uh, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here we see probably the most obvious statement. Literally, it says right there in verse 8, God is love. So God is the source of love. We ourselves cannot love even other humans without first getting our love from God, because God, who created us, was the first one to love us. So what's God's love like? Well, there's a pretty clear example, again, right here in the text. It talks about how in love, God sent his son to live among us, So the incarnation, the fact that Jesus became flesh, that he became man, that's an act of love on God's part. Furthermore, the crucifixion, the fact that Jesus went and died on the cross, that is another act that God did in love. And he also kind of rounds out this uh, this passage very, very well in verse 11 almost as a response to what are we to do about God's love and this expression of God's love through Christ. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John's message here is to believers. We're called to love one another simply because God first loved us. Hmm. So how would you say, I mean, I think the picture we're getting here is that God's love is different or set apart, I guess, in some ways. How would you maybe define that? How would you explain God's love as maybe different than the way that we talk about love in the world today? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. 
Um, I'm going to turn to a slightly different passage here, this time in Romans, which looks again at uh, Christ's sacrifice, hmm. which also supports the fact that it came in love, but it looks at it in a slightly different way. So Romans 5, 6 through 8, this is what it says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it adds that level of severity to it. Hmm. God loved us so much that even though we were enemies with him, he still sent Christ to die for us. So the first thing that I see is God's love is deep. It is incomprehensibly deep. Other passages say, I think Ephesians 3 kind of goes into mm -hmm. that a little bit. Another thing that we say, see is God's love is unconditional. He chooses to love us, and we are honestly powerless to escape that love. Hmm. Romans 8 talks about that as well. God's love is also affectionate. It's not some sort of general, almost inanimate love. It's a personal love. He wants to be very close with us, um, which is why he literally came to live among us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it would be fair to say then that God's love and the same love that we are then called to show one another is a love that is very active. It's very intentional. It is a, a action, a choice that we take. It's not, you know, the way the world wants to peddle love as though it's a, a feeling, you know, I fell out of love or I no longer love this thing or this person. But rather, God's love is a intentional choice that even though we are not deserving of it, he chooses to give it to us, to sacrifice for us, to do all these things in action intentionally for us. Yep. I think you're right on the money going to John. I think John has some of the best passages on love. My mind goes to, I mean, John 3.16, right? The most That's right, yeah. The most popular verse one. probably that people even outside the church know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is that same demonstration. I love that all the verses you were talking about there, it's, it's a demonstrable action. This is how it's proven. And I think that's the thing, again, that separates God's love and that type of love we're supposed to show as well. In the Greek, it would be agape, which is that it's it's demonstrable. It is it's taking actions for other people, sacrificially, not self-serving, but making those choices, not just this person has to be perfect before they deserve my love or before they deserve my, my feeling towards them. Absolutely. Yeah. God's love is certainly a very prominent characteristic that we see in the scriptures. But uh, I suppose another really big one is, what does the word really say about God as creator? Yeah, so that's another great topic. So another thing that we often think of when we talk about God, we think about his creativity, we might say, or the fact that he is a creator. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. We think, you know, very first verse of the entire Bible comes to mind, right? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, he created the heavens and earth. We see this creativity on display and the creating first from out, from nothingness to something. We see light and dark. We see water being formed. We see land. We see animals being formed. And then finally rounding up his creation with his own image reflected in humanity, the, the pinnacle of his creation. We also see God's creativity or the fact that he's creator explained in John 1 when another kind of creation passage, but in the New Testament, connecting Jesus to the creation account. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, that is Christ, and apart from him, 
not even one thing came into being that has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of mankind and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not grasp it and so when we think about god as being creator that points to his i mean other qualities we're going to talk about later maybe perhaps but his his otherness he is separate from our space and time kind of as we know it, it doesn't talk about god being created but he is the creator he spoke the world into being and i think is really interesting when we think about this and why it can be important to us is it points to his power it points to his authority which we'll maybe talk about a little bit more later it points to his love for his creation he's obviously not unconcerned with his creation and interestingly enough what we see as we go through scripture is that god's people often use this aspect of his being a creator as a title or a characteristic of him. I think of times in the Psalms or um, especially in the book of Isaiah where it says phrases like, thus saith the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, right? So this is almost this marker, this characteristic. Let's remind ourselves even conversationally or in Isaiah's case, as he's bringing a message from God to the people, let's remind ourselves who this God is. It is the God who created the heavens and the earth. It's really a defining feature. It could be almost used as a title of God. But again, it points to the, his authority and his power and really the fact that he's deserving of worship, I'd say, because he is the creator. I don't know if your mind went to any passages or what you think about when you think about this, Tim. Yeah, that's interesting. You, you pointed out a lot about how God as a creator, it points to his majesty. It points mm, to his glory. It points word. to his authority. And we even see how his act of creation and the beginning of Genesis, it's not just a one-off thing that just kind of describes the beginning of the Bible. It's kind of woven throughout the whole the whole narrative of the word. My mind goes to passages like Exodus 20, where he's going through the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And when he gets to the Sabbath, he talks about uh, how we are to keep the Sabbath holy because on the seventh day, God rested. And therefore, we are likewise also to rest on, well, not we, rather, the Israelites of that time period sure. were also likewise meant to rest. And even this even reaches into the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about uh, marriage, he quotes Genesis 2. Roots it in creation. And roots yes. it in creation, exactly. So the fact that God has created and established order in creation really sets up this whole movement as you say through the entire canon of scripture that so much of how we understand god comes back to the fact that he is the god who created and had therefore a plan for his creation a passage that i really like on this topic that is really sort of a, a summary in some ways and is the demonstration that god's people understood that god was creator comes from the book of nehemiah chapter 9 and this is the people confessing their sins before god as a big crowd and let me just read a couple verses here from nehemiah chapter 9 verses 5 may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessed all blessing sorry and praise you alone are the lord you have made the heavens the heaven of heavens with all their lights the earth and everything that is on it the seas and everything that is in them you give life to all of them and the heavenly lights bow down before you. So already pointing to the fact that he created, as we've talked about. But beyond that, God didn't just create the earth and people, but he created a people for himself as well. You alluded to the Israelites there. Well, here it comes. 
Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made a covenant with him. You gave him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the Perizzite, of the Jebusite, and of the Gerkeshite to give it to his descendants. And you fulfilled your promise because you are righteous. So God created the heavens, God created the earth, but then God created a people for himself. As you already mentioned, he created a law. He created the path to salvation. All of these things that we experience in God shows the way that he has created this order, this established system in place that God has created. So I think the fact that God is a creator is of immeasurable value and so important for us as we continue our walk of faith and understanding God better. Absolutely. Yeah. Very important. So Tim, we could flow that then out into the next topic, which would be coming out of this order that God has established, which is a word that we use again in Christianity often, but I think some people mean different things by it. And it's the fact that God is sovereign. So how would you understand God's sovereignty? Firstly, I'd look to the scriptures to be able to establish a bit of a baseline. Sure. Again, the scriptures are the uh, the anchor of our theology. All, all of our theology should come from this text. We shouldn't bring preconceived notions to this as well. We, we probably will as much as we try <laughs> to avoid it, but as much as possible, we read the word and then try to understand it from there. This topic brings us to Colossians 1, verses 15 to 18, which is sometimes called the, uh, the Christ hymn. But, mm. uh, he, that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So undeniably, Christ has power over all things. He, we already talked about how he's creator. He's literally the source of all things. He spoke, and from nothing, things came to be. Hmm. So he has power over all things. We also understand that the Lord has a sovereign will. I think of a psalm, actually. Psalm 115, verse 3, which talks about the will of God very briefly. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Now, this is written, the context of this verse is written in direct contrast to the idolatry of the nations around Israel, sure. where idols are useless and they can't do anything by themselves. Where is your God? Our God's in heaven. He does whatever he wants to do. Mm -hmm. So he's got a will up there. Mm -hmm. Now, I still have trouble sometimes wrestling between how does God in his power and God in his will, how does that relate to us as humans? Our day-to-day. -day. Our day-to-day. -day. Like, how am I able to make my own decisions and yet still be following the will of God? Because I still sin, which is clearly not part of the will of God. How do I reconcile the two? So I heard the other day a pretty good uh, illustration of this. As we live here in Canada, we're actually, our government type, we're called a constitutional monarchy. We're still technically, although mostly in name only, under <laughs> the authority of the Queen in England. Now, in times before the nation of Canada was formed, where the queen actually had direct authority over us, she would be the law of the land. What she says goes. She makes a law, and it becomes an effect over all the lands over which she reigns, including Canada. Therefore, she has all the power. She makes the rules. However, 
we, as subjects of the Queen, still have the freedom to be able to choose whether or not we follow these laws. If we disobey them, there will be consequences. However, we still have the freedom to be able to choose to disobey. And I like to think it's the same with God, in that he has absolute power, he makes the rules, but he still gives us the freedom to be able to choose whether or not we follow them. And I love the illustration of where Canada is at now, because although we are you know, under the banner of the queen in one kind of way, we do still have our own leaders. And I think that reflects elsewhere in scripture where, you know, God talks about the fact that he has placed leaders and authorities in our life that we are to respect and to obey unless that directly contrasts us with God. And so I think it definitely provides a good illustration in this case for, again, that free will we have. And understanding that is so important when it comes to understanding God's sovereignty, because we want to make it clear that when bad things happen in our life. It's not that God has caused those things, but that he has allowed those things to happen, whether by human intervention, by natural intervention, whatever the case, lest we make God into the author of sin, which he obviously cannot be. And so I think that's a really important note that you've hit on there, Tim. Absolutely. Yeah. And that doesn't make it any easier to accept the sovereignty of God when bad things happen to us. Uh, That's one of the big themes of the book of Job is talking about the sovereignty of God. Job was a righteous man. The Bible is very clear about that. And yet the devil did some pretty nasty things to him. Now, Job, from his earthly perspective, all he saw was his kids died. He lost his entire flock. He was covered in terrible, terrible, painful boils. Mm Mm-hmm. He didn't know about that interaction with God and the devil in heaven. All he knew was, all of a sudden, he's hit some pretty rough times. My life sucks now. And his friends came along and didn't make it much better. Mm -hmm. But besides that, Job's crying out, God, what's going on? Why? And I love the end of the book there in chapter 38 when God shows up. And this is what he says. Who is it? that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And on and on he goes for about two or three chapters or so, till Job puts his entire foot, probably his ankle too, (laughs) all the way up to his knee and his mouth, and repents, saying, I'm sorry, God, I forgot that you got this. And the most interesting thing is, God never gives Job a direct answer as to why his suffering happened. However, Job still responds in faithfulness, trusting the Lord. Yeah, and I love that you went to Job because my mind went there as well in the very last chapter of the book when we have Job's confession back to the Lord. And I'll just read a couple verses here, Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Please listen and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, I reprint, sitting on dust and ashes. This is Job recognizing, I cannot fully understand your will or your plan all the time, God, but I'm going to submit before it. And that's, I think, how God's sovereignty ends up playing out in our own lives. And another thing that actually links pretty closely to God's sovereignty is... It's almost as though these are all connected. (laughs) I know, right? It's almost as if we're talking about the same person. Wow. (laughs) What does the word say about God's holiness? So holiness is a really interesting one, in my opinion, because it's a word that, again, we use a lot in church. And I feel like 
people don't always understand what that means. And, and I'll add, I'll say people generically, including myself at times, that I have wrestled with what it fully means that God is holy. But today I actually cheated a little bit. I went to a Bible dictionary because I was curious what other people had to say about this because I know it encapsulates so many things. And here are some of the words that came up in comparison with God's holiness. Perfection, blameless, sacred, set apart, exalted, worthy of devotion. God's holiness is this reminder that God, again, similar to his creation aspect, but that God is set apart from us. God is sacred. He is beyond us. He is so infinitely better than us in his perfection because we are flawed, sinful human beings. And even though we're made in his image, he is set apart. He is holy. And that's what the word really means is that he is set apart. He is blameless and perfect. And I love that that last one in there, worthy of devotion. It's his holiness. The fact that he is perfect is why he deserves our praise, why he deserves our worship, because he has not fallen. He has not sinned. He has not done anything deserving of us not praising him. So really, you could say God's holiness is connected to his goodness. It's connected to his righteousness. It's also connected to his justness, which, as you said, kind of links back to his sovereignty as well. In terms of Bible passages, what comes to mind for me would be the the two classics. We have Isaiah chapter 6 or also Revelation chapter 4. And maybe I'll go to the Revelation one today. And these are passages we've brought up before, I'm sure, on the podcast and, and in other situations. But in Revelation chapter 4, this is the description of the throne room. It says, The four living creatures, each of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And this is almost a direct quote of what Isaiah witnesses as well in Isaiah chapter 6. And one of the things we've talked about in this podcast, in Bible studies, etc., is that when the Bible was written, they didn't have their bold. They didn't have their italics. And so when they wanted to draw emphasis to something, they used repetition. And in this case, we have the word holy not repeated once, but repeated twice. He is a God who is holy, holy, holy. So he's not even a God who is a little bit holy or even an extra bit holy, but he is perfectly and completely holy, blameless, and set apart. I think grammatically would say that's a superlative. A superlative, yes. That is that is the word that I was thinking of that would not come to my tongue there, that he is the holiest of holies. And yet, why this is interesting in many ways, beyond the fact that obviously it draws our worship, but then you have passages like in Leviticus, and then quoted again in First in Peter, where God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And as a believer, I find that to be really hard, because I am not holy. And yet the call to God's people, in not only in Leviticus, but then again in the New Testament in First Peter, is you shall be holy, for I am holy. In First Peter chapter 1 verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. This is a really high bar, a really high bar that is set for us and something that we know we can't accomplish in our own strength. And yet that is part of what God's holiness represents is that he is a holy God calling us to be holy and thank the Lord for Jesus Christ who stands in and says, I am holy, even though Andrew is not holy, even though Tim is not holy, they're with me and I am. And to be able to think you quoted from Leviticus and all that's 
directly from the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. And we remember from the book of Romans, what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show us how holy God is and how sinful we are, how Mm -hmm. there's no possible way that we ourselves can measure up to God's holiness, which is the whole reason why Christ came, Mm -hmm. because we can't do it ourselves. Yeah. We think of all the examples in the Old Testament, especially people can't even look at God. People look at God and they die. You know, the one person who gets a chance, Moses, his face is glowing with divine sunburn for days because he looked at God. He tells him to take off his shoes for he's standing on holy ground. Just the fact that God is represented in that burning bush makes all the ground around it holy ground. It is so hard to comprehend. It's so beyond us. And yet that is, again, what makes him deserving of our worship. Well, Tim, we've talked a lot about God, which I think is a great thing. Let's end with the most important question. Why is it important to have a biblical understanding of God? So I actually based the initial thoughts of my answer in the Reformation. Part of church history, 1600s roughly, Martin Luther, John Calvin, a whole bunch of other people whose names probably aren't quite as famous as those two. Sure. But they came up with those famous phrases for those who know your church history, the five solas. These are basically reforms they wanted to make on the Catholic Church of their day that they thought were wrong. And one of them was by scripture alone. The Catholic Church at that time was basically saying um, the authority that we base our theology, the way we live our lives on, comes from the word. But it also can come from church tradition and from the word of the Pope. Mm -hmm. So these reformers came along and said, no, sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our source of authority. And we can see why very clearly, even from the pages of scripture itself, my mind immediately goes to Hebrews 4.12, which says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is a very powerful word. And I think just in a very basic understanding, if we really want to know God the way he wants us to know him, we ought to know what his word, his revelation to us says about him. That's exactly right, Tim. The Bible is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us in this day and age. And if our understanding of God is not from the word of scripture, if it is not from the Bible, if it's not biblical, then that is not the same God. It's not the God that we worship. And that's where we get all these doorways open to you know, making God in our image rather than the other way around or picking and choosing what parts of God we like and leaving the others behind that we get to make God the God that we want to worship rather than the God who deserves our worship. So I think that's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Well, Tim, it's been a bit of a longer discussion today, but I think this has been great. Chatting about God, again, never a bad thing to spend time thinking about our creator, our sustainer, the one who loves us, the one who's sovereign over us, the one who is full of perfect holiness. So Tim, thanks for the chat today and listener until next time, go with grace and peace. Farewell. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.